think for the most part, the leaders look at me as a trusted partner where they can have real conversations and talk about real struggles. You know, I want to do this, but my board's thinking this way. I want to say this to this person, but I'm afraid I will offend and make a racist or a sexist remark. So I think it is a blend of being a trusted um, person with whom they can be 100% psychologically safe, but also who has a strategic thinking focus in the way that I create solutions. I'm just really interested every single day at finding solutions. From Qualtrics Industries, this is Breakthrough Builders, a series of conversations with people whose passions, perspectives, instincts, and ideas fuel some of the world's most amazing products, brands, and experiences. I'm Jesse Pierwall. Today on the show, how Dr. Kelly McElhaney has blended inspiration and agitation to help students and business leaders find their way, and how taking a phone call during a layover at O'Hare got her on the path to creating thriving centers for both responsible business and equality and gender leadership at UC Berkeley's Haas School of Business. Kelly, it's good to see you. How are you? I'm great, Jesse. It's great to see you after so many years. I'm doing great. Well, where have you been staying safe these days? Where do I find you? You find me in what is now a home office, what used to be a TV room, and before that it was a guest room. So you find me right at home, sheltering in place. And is is this where your students have been finding you too? Have you been doing the whole professor at home gig in the pandemic? I have with dog and cat and two college-aged girls prancing by, not realizing that I am live teaching. So they have seen the whole family. And Kelly, how well does it turn out that uh, the university, the University of California High School, how how well does it turn out everybody was prepared to deal with something like this? It was right in the middle of a semester for the way our semesters are laid out. Unbelievable preparation by the Haas School of Business. Our technology group has been unbelievable. I'm absolutely just super grateful to not only the school, but the humans who just really made me feel that no question was stupid. All those professorial things I learned, they know far better than I. So Kelly, you're a teacher, you're an advisor to companies, you're a thought leader, you're also an author. Those are those are labels. Uh, how do you organize and clarify your own place in the world? How should our audiences think about who you are and, and what you stand for as a professional? I think in two different ways that might feel very opposite One is to be a chief inspiration officer. And I mean that truly. I mean, today was the first day of class. And as I'm heading into my first class, I'm really focused on how am I going to inspire young people in my class right now? The second is as a chief agitation officer. How do I agitate folks out of their comfort zone enough that they grow, but not too much such that they shut down in a, again, time in history in which it is so easy to be agitated all the time. Well, as you know, I'm, I'm want to, to draw two by twos and I'm, I'm trying to think of the fear of being high on being agitated and low on inspiration. And I got to think that's not a place to be. So I love that you're foiling those two. What has been unique or special about the degree of inspiration or the type of inspiration you've had to give to the community in this crazy time? In an odd sort of way, Jesse, the, the, the 
most successful way I inspire people is by allowing them to actually feel. It's okay to feel. I mean, there's, we're just in such a high level of all kinds of emotions all at once and the confusion around it all. Um, I feel like part of what I do is just to give people space to both be safe and be brave with their feelings as well as their thoughts and to bring those two things. And I think that one of the ways I am successful at being able to inspire folks is to show them that their head and their heart are in the same being. And how did you discover the university professorship as an avenue towards being someone who is a chief inspiration and agitation officer? You started out, you know, your career in the private sector, you elected to make a a pivot. What made you either have the the courage uh, or to do that? or, Or why was it the obvious move for you to make? My father was both an academician as well as an athletic director. Um, in the collegiate world. So I was born into a family of educators. My mother taught in K-12 with severely and multiply handicapped children. So they would like to take credit. You'll get this as a parent. We, we want to think that we have all this power and um, you know influence over our kids. I'll give them that. They did. Just, just didn't happen until I was in my later years that I recognized that. But I think in all honesty and with some, some sense of sadness, I was so miserable in my experience in the corporate world. I had phenomenal company working with phenomenal people, but not doing anything that I felt was purposeful. I backed into the education world. I just couldn't, I couldn't go on another day existing as I found myself existing in my corporate experience. Well, Kelly, go, go a little deeper for me. Like what, I mean, it's one thing to go from a brokerage house to an investment bank. It's quite another to say that, that now I'm actually going to leave the sector. I'm going to put my life a little bit more in, in service of other people and help them grow. Despite the fact that it was in your blood, I, I got to think there were some catalysts that occurred to you uh, along the way. So maybe un- unpack those for me a little bit. Yeah. You know, the voice is always there and you find ways to justify it. I need to keep this job because I'm paying off student loans, which I was or I need to keep this job because I haven't yet proven myself, which I hadn't, or I need to keep this job because, wow, being a banker, that just sounds really cool. I'll be really direct. I was checking so much of myself at the door every day to physically go into work that I believe there was a day that I I felt like I came out of the office and I couldn't pick all of those things back up. Like I had checked them, but I had sort of then lost touch with those components of myself. And how that played out was I knew I was uninspired, I was exhausted all the time for no apparent reason. I just didn't really have a lot of motivation to to get up in the morning and get into my office, which, by the way, I was in banking in the 80s. And if you weren't at your office by 7 a.m., you were late. So I remember walking in one day at 7.30 and my boss, he looked at his watch as I walked in at 7.30 a.m. And he was reading the Wall Street Journal and he looked at me and he said, good afternoon. And I just remember thinking, you're kidding, right? You're sitting here reading the Wall Street Journal, which I already read at the comfort of my kitchen table in my pajamas. Like, this is just a fake sort of environment. And so I got so uninspired and just sort of energetically not there that I looked up various volunteer opportunities in the city where I was living at the time. And I took a, a volunteer opportunity to teach in a men's prison to teach communication. I was teaching more around storytelling and sort of personal communications and that, that the juxtaposition of those two experiences just came crashing. You couldn't ignore that that I was much more motivated to walk into that men's prison and teach at night. 
I think while I was challenged in my day job as a banker, I didn't see how I was making change. Of course, I was extraordinarily challenged by walking into a men's prison at night, but the power to feel like I had the ability not to change them, but to ignite in them the ability for them to tell their story, to really, you know, just gosh, listening to one person, the first person telling his story, which I also remember vividly. And I remember, you know, the look and just the energy in the room and just to see the light bulb go off in him and the power he felt at simply both telling his story, but being listened to, being heard was very powerful. And this wouldn't be the last time that you would go through a significant re- reflection in your life, right? I think you went through a, a pretty deep process a little bit later when I've, I've heard you say in a talk that you didn't want to be the Volvo driving soccer mom and you had gone on a path to sort of discover and define your values. Can you talk about that stage of your, your journey, which is you know obviously after you'd you know, joined academia and what, what that looked like for you? Two things came together. I was asked to give a TED talk, a TEDx talk at the Presidio here in, in the Bay Area. And they wanted me to come and talk about what was my expertise and focus area at the time, which was corporate social responsibility, but sort of almost additively at the end of our prep session, they said, oh yeah, we want you to talk about your core values. And I thought, oh, okay, no problem. So I sat, you know, sat down over time to work out the presentation. And of course I did what I knew best, which was to work out the sustainability CSR part of the presentation and left the values to the end through a painful process. I came out with, at that moment, the, the core values of being bold, authentic, and connected, and did the TED Talk. And I think it was probably two days later, I was driving my girls to school in my Volvo station wagon in a very affluent neighborhood. But in that moment, when I looked around, it was all mothers dropping off their children to school, all white, all either dressed in sort of tennis wear or athleisure, very few of them heading off into a job um, outside of their home. And I just remember thinking, I don't fit here. I don't feel like I am being authentically me right now. Mm. And that was hard because I had two young girls and you know, a life that we had created for ourselves out here in California that somehow just didn't fit. And who did you look to to get to the other side of that? I looked to a lot of people and they all said the exact same thing in different words. You need to look within. You can only look at your, you can only look to yourself for the answer here because this is a big crossroads and the stakes are high. And so I had to really do some deep soul searching to say, is this the life that I am comfortable enough in modeling for two children? And that to me was kind of the, the sticking point for me was I can make the easy decision and stick and play this role, or I can make the hard decision, show my girls what a hard decision looks like, and then show sort of the afterlife of putting on a a suit that fits far better. But I had to spend a lot of time looking inward, and I really wanted somebody else to give me that that answer. Is there a version of imposter syndrome that befalls anyone who is a university professor at a high level like you, just in the sense that you know in your own mind and in your own life that you're a constant work in progress. It's like generation after generation of these people are sort of coming to you going, show me the way. And you've got to go, okay, let's have a conversation and here's the way. But at the same time, you're you're always building yourself. And that's got to be such a crazy paradox. It is a crazy paradox. It's funny. I just got an email from one of those students. 
she's evening weekend, she's working at Amazon. And she said something to me that really struck me. She said, you know, you brought it, you brought it every single class, you brought it, you brought your frustrations if something was happening, you brought your fears, you brought your happiness, you brought your sadness. And she said, it was just so refreshing to see somebody being so vulnerable, but not letting those feelings define her. So as you know, I remember seeing you angry with something that was happening, but your anger didn't define you. Um, she said, I remember seeing you frustrated one day, but the frustration didn't define you. What defined you was your comfort in being your authentic self in that class at that day. So I'm not saying I don't fight it, Jesse. I absolutely do. I am telling you that I get rewarded for doing just the opposite, which is not fighting and holding up that armor. That said, I've become, I've learned the hard way to not start out that way. You know, that wasn't day one. They had to believe in me, believe that I knew exactly what I was doing. I could tell them exactly what to do. You know, that comes over time and with trust. And I've also learned the hard way that I can't be that person with everybody. I've sort of had to learn to discern people and situations. Well, it is interesting to think about how inspiration and agitation are not only pedagogical in nature, that they are human in, in nature. And that student who appreciated the whole you, I've got to think, is one of many, many types of rewarding examples that you could have just just cited. How did you find your way into, Kelly, the domain of corporate social responsibility as, as you went through the university track and starting at Michigan and you know right now at Berkeley? Was it inspired by a desire to sort of push against some of the energies that you had encountered and experienced in your private sector career? So I got into a PhD program, not knowing exactly what I wanted to study. Again, I really at that time thought I wanted to become a university president. So I loved leading and managing in the corporate world. I just wanted to see if I could shift that into the academic world. And I was able to take a year off and, and move to China and teach at a university. Um, in our off time, I and a, a woman from France who was teaching at the university with me, we took a donkey. We paid 20 yuan to take a donkey up a really steep mountain. And two things happened at the top of that mountain. It was a treacherous path. I felt so, so sorry for this donkey. And we had negotiated really hard 20 yuan to go up the mountain. But of course, once we got there, we learned it was 40 yuan to come back down. So that was a really cool concept of the crassness of capitalism in its most pure form. And I thought it was wildly cool that this individual entrepreneur had figured out this model. But the second thing, it was a very treacherous trek up this mountain, truly. I remember being up there and seeing a person with a cart selling Coca-Cola and another person selling Pond's cold cream. I remember thinking, man, we barely made it up this, this, this mountain. I couldn't get running water daily in my flat. I couldn't get electricity on any level of consistency. Somehow Coca-Cola figured out how they could get their product up this really craggy rock steep incline. And I just remember thinking, you know, if companies can do that and the government can't or the public sector can't, I wonder if there's a way we can harness that pure power of capitalism, which I had just seen by this guy charging us twice the amount to get back down the mountain. Um, could we harness the power of the corporate world to create positive change? So it really was this high on the mountain aha moment for me. And then I went back to University of Michigan and as luck has it, started studying under Professor Stuart Hart at University of Michigan. He's not there anymore. It's now called the Ross School of Business. And this is what he was teaching. And so I was just, it, sort of the universe aligns. You have this mountain experience. 
you go through a door and you meet somebody who is that person high on the mountain who can help you navigate that. So that's really how it all came together. So interesting that you went to the the inevitability of the capitalist architecture and the possibility for it to be more, which just tells me that you're thinking ahead of the present, which has to be a good attribute for your students um, to keep learning from you. So just recognize that inherent in that story are a lot of, I think, wonderful assumptions that you made about the world. As you went on um, in into the into the field, um, and when, where we got to know each other at at Berkeley, your your thesis was that corporate social responsibility was was not an activity; it was a strategy. Um, so, talk a little bit about that because I think some people might equate CSR at some level with goosed up corporate philanthropy, or or they might just not totally understand what it means to be committed to a corporate social responsibility strategy. It's been a long time since I started down that path, and I. I want to believe that things have changed drastically. And when I really think through that, I still argue with people that it is not about throwing money at a cause. That That is straight up philanthropy. And it's a necessary but wholly insufficient condition for systems change. I, I view it as a business strategy. This makes us a better business. Reducing Reducing waste, that saves me money as a company. Like there's a payout. There's an ROI for reducing waste. Reducing, you know, plastic packaging, improving the lives of women who are sewing my product in the factory. It just seems so obvious to me that there's a business return for that. And yet I think the easy mental model is to think that corporate social responsibility is just investing through your corporate foundation. And that is that is such a narrow piece of it all. To me, it is to figure out what are my core business objectives on any given day I think the challenge is what's my core competency? So if I'm in the financial world, which I'll use since I came from finance, what I know is finance. So improving somebody's financial literacy will both make the world a better place, but also the more financially literate society we have, the more they will come to my bank for banking services and products. So I think the second part, for whatever reason, has been where I've really seen companies trip up is to get involved in great philanthropic activities or even great CSR strategies that don't meet their core competencies. And so they mess it up. And Kelly, we talk on this show about breakthroughs and how people build breakthroughs. In 2003, at the Haas School, you founded the Center for Responsible Business. You really pioneered corporate social responsibility as a core competency, as a competitive advantage, I would argue, for the Haas School at, at UC Berkeley. Financial Times had ranked Haas number one in the world for CSR, and you were helping produce amazing graduates who went on to, to good companies and, and interesting roles. There were a lot of accolades and recognition in those years for all you, you did. By all accounts, it was a breakthrough. Um, can you talk about how you got the center off the ground in those early days uh, and what some of the key ingredients to your success were? The story is actually one of the more beautiful moments of my life because it brings together Bob Haas, who is absolutely a hero to me to this day. I really hope he listens to this because he is so humble. I've told him this multiple times individually, but I hope he gets to hear it on the on the airwaves. Two, two years in a row, I came out to interview for a job in the CSR space at Haas. They didn't know what the what was. They just knew they wanted to bring in somebody to do something. And for various family reasons and personal reasons, I was unable to accept the offer. The third year, things had changed, and so I had more freedom and flexibility. Were the offer to come up again, and 
Very fortunately, it did. And I was flying home, literally flying home from my interview from San Francisco to Detroit, Michigan, because I was at University of Michigan, and I had a layover in O'Hare, but my cell phone rang, and I answered it, and he said, this is Bob Haas. And he said, I want you to take this job because I want to transform business education, and I want you to be my partner in crime. And if you ever want to get somebody to take a job on the spot, there's no better language than I want to transform XYZ and I want you to be my partner in crime because they had me on the spot. I couldn't afford a house out here. I couldn't afford to live out here. I was moving a family and we, you know, who, who, you know, completely uprooting a family, but just that. So the first thing that helped me be successful was having somebody like Bob Haas in my court. There was also, there had been a donor named Mike Homer, who was a Haas undergraduate alum he went through a lot of other startups that quickly, you know, skyrocketed in the tech sector. And he had given a chunk of money to Haas. And he said, I want, and he said kids, this is when he was 40 years old. He said, I want kids to do it differently than I did it. I got out of school. I got really lucky. I made a ton of money and now I want to give back. He said, what, what I want to do with this money is to build something so that kids know that they can get out of school and they don't need to wait until they make millions to start giving back they need to know they can do it immediately when they walk over that stage and get their diploma. So that helped a lot to have both the money and two people like Bob Haas and Mike Homer who were just incredible leaders. I'll just never forget. And then I met Mike and he was just this phenomenal, just hard charging, loud swearing, flip flop wearing guy who just welcomed me into his room and said, let's get this shit done. Like, let's just get this done. And it was such a great experience. That That's how I got the center. I had money. I had backers. I had business leaders. You know, my, my first board at the Center for Responsible Business and my first founding board was Bob Haas, Mike Homer, Bill Campbell, who was the founder of Intuit, and Deborah Dunn, who was an EVP. She's Randy Komisar's wife. Randy's at Kleiner Perkins. She was EVP at the time at HP. And I like they used to literally hire a driver to bring them up for a board meeting. I had no idea how phenomenal, successful, famous they were. We just kind of got in a room, rolled up our shirt sleeves and created a plan. Kelly, what did the brand of Berkeley Haas do for the center? And and what did the brand of the center eventually do for the the school? And And the question kind of behind the question is for leaders who are standing up these kinds of programs at universities, how should they think about the associations that are held in people's minds with the school and the kinds of new associations um, that need to be built out as you go through that kind of endeavor? Yeah, it's a great brand question, Jesse, such a brand guy, because I hadn't actually thought about it. The brand of UC Berkeley was both positive and negative in starting the Center for Responsible Business. It was positive because, in my opinion, it's pretty inarguable that Berkeley is UC Berkeley is the top public institution in the world. People are going to listen when you knock on their door and say, I'm a professor at UC Berkeley. Can I talk to you about this center that I need money for, need partnerships for? I do remember there being a significant amount of pushback on stents on starting a center for responsible business in a business school. There were some professors who said, this is going to soften our brand. Like they already think we're hippies. If you now put a center and give it this title of responsible business, it's even going to make us seem more woo-woo, more hippie, you know, more leftist or whatever anybody was worried about. So it was this kind of odd brand conundrum of 
is this going to dilute? I remember distinctly somebody said, this is going to dilute our brand as a top-notch business school. And in fact, it did not. I think that that person didn't have their finger on the pulse of what the youths of the world who were looking for MBA programs were interested in. But there's no question UC Berkeley opens wide doors. Well, it's a, yeah, in, in a brand calculus sense, it's a look forward, reason back scenario planning exercise to say, do we believe that we will produce the types of graduates who will both accrue to, you know, the economy and to the other areas that we want to create benefit in, in a distinctive way that to your earlier point matches and builds on our core competency, if we lean into something like this, or, or will we not? Uh, and what I love about the decision to have a center within the school, but still clearly affiliate with the school and do all the things that you did with building partnerships with the private sector was lay a claim to say, this is how we think the world's going to work. And the reality is these academic private sector partnerships actually served as a really interesting emblem for how to think about lifetime learning and the relationship between universities and companies and all these other things that I just think unlocked a whole bunch of adjacencies in the way that graduates like me and folks that I went to school with felt empowered to think differently about. That's education. It is all about thinking differently. And I think that sometimes we forget that. Um, academic institutions don't tend to be high risk oriented. And I think at the time, there are a lot of people at the school who thought it was a high risk endeavor. Never once occurred to me that this was risky. I'm so glad I have that mentality because I probably would have done so much less in my life if I realized how many risks were involved. I just didn't see it as a risk. I saw it very clearly. Mm. And Kelly, talk to me about the dynamic in your advisory relationships with folks at companies in the private sector. Um, is it like therapy? Is it like consulting? Is it a little bit of, of both? When an executive at a company says, hey, Kelly, I need your help, paint a picture for me in terms of what that relationship then looks like uh, and what the give and take is. It's a great question because if I could go back for a PhD, I would go back in psychology because it turns out it's a lot of therapy. It's just creating a sense of psychological safety with these corporate leaders. So I think very strategically, and I think that's the first reason why I have these you know, relationships with, with corporate executives. But what I hear from corporate executives, corporate leaders with whom I work is that they, they can't have a lot of conversations. The feeling is that the higher up you go, the less real you can be in terms of saying what you don't know, what you're afraid of, um, where I've messed up, am I gonna mess up? So I think for the most part, the leaders look at me as a trusted partner where they can have real conversations and talk about real struggles. You know, I wanna do this, but my board's thinking this way. I wanna say this to this person, but I'm afraid I will offend and make a racist or a sexist or a fill in the blankest remark. So I think it is a blend of being a trusted um, person with whom they can be 100% psychologically safe, but also who has a strategic thinking focus in the way that I create solutions. I'm just really interested every single day at finding solutions, not sticking at the problem. Um, what does it take to help someone unlock that, particularly given fiduciary responsibility and employee culture ownership and all of these other things that people are accountable for? I think the thing I've heard a lot that always shocks me is that I validate what 
they think it's the right thing to do, but are being told by others not to do. And sometimes they're being told not to do it because it is the right thing to do. And it will be perceived as taking your eye off the investment you know, window or the profit window or all of the other things. So I think, so I think the, you know, the first thing is just really validating this, this need to, to feel okay to talk about your feelings, to, to act on your feelings, obviously in a well-reasoned, well-thought-out pattern. It's probably better if I talk to you in, um, in real examples. And I, sometimes I can name the company, sometimes I don't feel comfortable doing so. So in this particular situation, I'm, I'm, um, I had done a lot of consulting for the company, and now I am a coach to this CEO, and it's a commercial, it's a commercial construction firm. You know, he's got this fleet of construction workers, obviously working for him at this company. We're in COVID. There's a large degree of them who are from the Latinx or Hispanic community. We know that COVID rates are disproportionately wildly hitting. In fact, I just saw LA rates are just, they've grown 400% in the Hispanic Latinx community. He knows that stress levels are at an all-time high, and he knows that in this particular construction world, mostly men, if not almost all men, mental health is a big issue. He's really concerned about mental health of his employees. And he's like, but I can't say that because this is not a community of people who came from therapy. They didn't get into therapy as children. You know, that therapy is not something that is part of their cultural background. It's not something they feel comfortable accessing. And I'm really worried about their mental health. So we have spent so much time talking through ways in which he can bring in speakers who touch on mental health, but that's not the core part of their discussion. Ways in which he can model small, you know, discussions around his own struggles with anxiety, which he had never told anybody until this year. Um, it's really just an interesting experience of almost freeing him to be the CEO and human he wants to be, not just the CEO that he wants to be. And to have those kinds of, of discussions are just really um, so inspirational to see the amount of change he wants to make every single day along with being profitable. When you think about the impact that you are having at Haas and in these centers that you've stood up, and I want to get to EGAL, the Center for Equity, Gender, and Leadership next, do you organize it in your own mind as you are having impact on individuals one by one? Or do you think of it as sort of the great ocean of impact that you can then have in a more abstract way? Well, you know, the thing that puts me to bed at night, for good or for bad, is I think about it more individually. So when I looked out at my Zoom class today, I, I look at every individual student in that classroom and think, am, am I reaching him? Am I reaching her? Why is he looking down? So I really am more of a, you know, the the, the mass change that happens afterwards, I'm, I'm always shocked. For my current center, the Center for Equity, Gender, and Leadership, when when we were sitting down and conceptualizing that, and I say we a lot. It actually was just me in the beginning, and there was no team. I had been asking to start something then much more narrowly focused on women in leadership. Now it is much more broad than just women. But I had been asking to do something in this space probably for four years and being told in various different wonderful elocutions of no, it doesn't fit in a business school. You need to go to the School of Gender Studies. But when I really just think that various deans that I'd run through got tired of hearing me ask, Finally, um, I was told, you can do it. Go do it. You have no staff and no money, but go do it. But when I sat down to really think about 
What's our core competencies? Went right back to corporate social responsibility and the way I think about it. What's our core competency? We develop leaders at Haas. And in fact, I did some research. We graduate over a thousand leaders a year at Haas throughout all of our degree programs. So a thousand Haas leaders are descending upon the corporate world every year. We really just sat there and thought, we're going to graduate a thousand leaders at Haas who understand the concept of equity fluency. I started to think more at mass scale on that, but I still think about each one of those thousand leaders that we develop every year. And how do you define equity fluent leadership? How have you seen that in action, Kelly? We decided to get away from the words diversity, equity, and inclusion because they were those three words cause a lot of emotional noise. So we wanted to back out and really look at how this is part of our core competency, which is developing leaders. So the concept of equity fluent leadership is really quite simple. It starts out with understanding the value of different lived experiences, whether those are people on your team, whether those are your customers, your consumers, your competitors. It's really just to understand that the the difference of the different lived experiences are actually something that will make you a far better human being, but a better leader and a better company. So we define it as understanding the value of different lived experiences and then courageously using your voice to address barriers, increase access and drive for positive change. But I got so excited to teach this new construct. So the first time I taught it was in a corporate classroom and I was just so proud of this new leadership construct. And I get in there and I'm talking to them about the value of different lived experiences and how do you address barriers? What barriers can you address? And I had this like epic fail moment by taking the pulse on who was in the class and the conversation and how things were unfolding. And huge aha for me, Jesse, was we don't even understand our own lived experience. So here I am pushing people to understand the value of different lived experiences, and we don't even know our own lived experience. Now we're talking about diversity, equity, inclusion, or equity-fluent leadership. And I teach this, I study it, I consult in it, I advise in it. I read about it pretty much 24-7. Until this summer with the Central Park Coopers situation with the Black Bird Watcher, I didn't realize my own lived experience. And I didn't think twice about it. But the first time I walked out my front door and looked down at my phone and realized with this phone, I have in my hand a possible weapon that could jeopardize a black man's life with the dial of three numbers, 911. It occurred to me that I don't even understand my own lived experience. That never occurred to me that I had that power in my hand. So a lot of equity fluency is really spending time understanding your own lived experience and how that shapes how you show up every day as a leader. In terms of equity fluency, I mean, there's so many great examples lately of just, you know, watching CEOs step up and really say, we've, we've failed. We have failed black corporate America. We have failed you as employees for not having a more diverse leadership team. Um, we have failed black owned businesses by not sourcing more from black owned businesses. There have been some really good examples of, of equity fluency. Unfortunately, late in the game, we had to go through, we had to see a lot. I mean, obviously these sort of rate, the racial injustices of the world have been happening since the start of time, sadly enough. We had to see a compressed version of them exploded on national TV while we were sheltered in place. So I, again, here's how my brain works. It's late. Things have not happened for a really long time, but let's focus on what's happening and how we can accelerate it. You know, the fact that 
Uh, Netflix moved billions of their own dollars into Black-owned banks. That, that's such a beautiful example of both equity-fluent leadership and corporate social responsibility. That's just not throwing money at Black causes. That is taking cold, hard cash that is sitting in white-owned banks and moving it into Black-owned banks, which is a way to really sort of shift the system in terms of wealth generation. Well, and not to mention the investments in, uh, in Shonda Rhimes and all the great content exactly. she's creating. I mean, yes, these yes. examples are, they, they go deep. And it, I, I think it's worth pointing out, you know, that addition to your, um, your two instances, because it goes back to corporate social responsibility as strategy. When a company takes 360 measures to promote that kind of change, it's real and it's authentic and it's needle moving as opposed to if you sort of issue a press release, you know, denouncing something bad and then sort of move, move on. Given the number of things, Kelly, that you think about and that you work on and that you hold yourself accountable for, how do you manage your time and prioritize your focus? How do you choose what to say yes versus no to? And how do you manage the majors and minors in your life? I work with people who I like. I mean, there's so many disingenuous people out there. I just try to really maximize time with people um, that I genuinely like, but I'm also really focused on working with change agents. So courage is a metric that I don't think I've ever utilized before, but I look at working with people who have courage. They may not have turned it on yet. They may still have their hand on the switch of on off, but I'm really interested in working with people who are willing to be courageous, who are, you know, really not going to live in a moment of fear of what's the criticism going to be if I do this, but just are really ready to, to sort of ignite and accelerate. But I do still struggle with saying yes as a woman, saying yes, living in a fear that I won't be liked. Um, but, you know, I have good people in my life who also say, why are you taking that job? Is it really going to create change? I have people in my life purposely who call me out on my BS so it's really funny. I'm somebody who has a pretty low tolerance for BS. I've now been lucky enough to have people in my life who also give that right back to me and have low tolerance for my BS. Kelly, I've, I, I have noticed that you have continued to adapt and you've evolved your role your entire career. How would you take your own lived experience and use it to counsel people who are planning for a career that's going to take you know another four, five, six decades? How do you build a career anticipating a future that is so to be formed and is so uncertain? Anything I say is going to make it sound easier than it is. It's not easy. Um, maybe cataloging a list of the shoulds that are in your life or on any given day, all of those voices that say you should do this, you should do that, you shouldn't do this. If you just wrote a list of all of those things down, there's probably a nugget of wisdom in there of things that you're doing because you should versus things that you're doing because you believe in them, you feel them, they, they really fire you up. But it is to, over time, start to pay attention to when you do feel moments of fire in your belly. And how do I connect? How do I have more of those moments, not fewer of those moments? So it's almost more of a steady, uh, slow shift towards, towards what's in my belly. But I do think a lot of times we tend to create this archetype of somebody who had to take huge risk and you know sell everything they own and go 
make this big leap into a big idea that they were so unsure of. And I, I think that most change agents, it's it's a little a little bit at a time, over time. And then when you get better at it, you start to recognize, yeah, I have this vision. Everybody's telling me it's not going to happen. That means it's going to happen because that's usually when I'm most successful. But the little unlocks, for me anyway, are much more successful than waiting for that huge unlock. Makes sense. Kelly, I want to move on to the lightning round of questions here just to get your first reaction on these. You ready for these? Yes, go for it. Okay. Haas School of Business values are question the status quo, confidence without attitude, students always, and beyond yourself. Which one resonates most deeply with you? You know the answer to this. Question the status quo every single day. Your biggest professional breakthrough? Is realizing that I don't always have to be right, that sometimes if not all the time, it's more important to focus on how to be effective. Where you think you'd be living if you didn't call the Bay Area home? A beach in a warmer climate with a warmer water. (laughs) The greatest challenge facing business leaders in this moment. Very, very easy. Lack of courage. The most influential author you've ever read or speaker you've ever seen. Brene Brown has 12 different books. Dare to Lead's my favorite, but if you're not a big reader, Watch her one-hour special on Netflix and you'll get it all in one hour, but for sure, Renee Brown. I like it. I like it. A company or organization you'd dearly love to have eGal work with? Levi. Why? Why Levi? It is a company that I think has um, uh, just relentlessly focused on their values. Just a really values-driven company that's been through so many different, you know, high profit, high loss, high profit, but they've never lost touch with who they are as a company. It's almost like they're a human. It just feels like a very human company with super strong values and integrity. Your secret sauce, that thing or combination of things that's unique and special about how you show up. Agitate and inspire, but not too much of one and not too little of the other. And three words that describe your leadership style. Daring, big hearted, and vulnerable. And Kelly, one final question for the builders listening. If they wanted to know what the most important piece of advice they should take from you, given the world as you've seen it, the world as you've experienced it, and the world as you've helped build it, what would that advice be? Just use your voice. There's probably no worse feeling than sitting there and saying, I should have spoken up. I should have done this. It's just use your voice. Kelly, thank you. Thank you so much as always. It's been a pleasure. I'm glad that our paths crossed and continue to cross. And though I am indebted to you for much, I will continue to be indebted to you for more. Um, Use that career in in finance to uh, make sure you're keeping track of my debits to you. Uh, Because now I have one more thing to add to the list. So thanks again. You should know how how much pride there is in, in getting a call from a former student who's doing something amazing like this, plus all the other things you do, plus managing a family as well as a significantly full-time job. <laughs> it certainly is that. Okay, be well. Thanks, Jesse. Ah, I can't tell you how great it was to have this conversation with Kelly. She's a force, she's a force for good, and she's been a force in my life for sure. I knew when I went to Haas at Berkeley that I'd be focused on corporate social responsibility, and it was there that I met Kelly, and it was while 
studying with her at Haas that I discovered the linkages between CSR and strategy and brand and marketing, which is what led me first to Starbucks and then, of course, to Profit in the world of brand and now to Qualtrics. When I asked Kelly for those three words at the end of the conversation to describe her relationship style, uh, excuse me, her leadership style, I have to tell you, I smiled, but I wasn't surprised in the least to hear her answer. Daring, big-hearted, and vulnerable. I think she put all of that and more on display in this conversation, and we are all better for it. I would have personally added versatility to her list. We talked so much about her career teaching, entrepreneurship, advisory, being a mom, on and on. We covered lots of ground, and it was, it was hugely compelling. So a thousand thanks, Kelly, for all that you do. For this week's Building Block, I'd like you to dwell a bit on Kelly's perspective on lived experience. She's in dialogue with lots of students and leaders about how to understand lived experience and the value of different lived experiences and how to address barriers. And she got vulnerable in this dialogue and told us about her aha that maybe she hadn't been aware of how exceptional her particular lived experience was until she reflected on the confrontation between Amy Cooper and Christian Cooper in New York in May of 2020. And she thought about how she needed to show up a little bit different every day as a leader after that. What I'd like you to do is think about your own lived experience and write down a few things. Number one, what do you think have been the top couple influences in your life? And number two, how did you get to have access to those influences, those people or those experiences or those environments? In my case, when we just talked about my relationship with Kelly, I'd say one key feature of my lived experience is I've been able to do what I have largely because of the people in my life that I've had access to who've chosen to be selfless and and give their time and energy and perspective to me as I've grown. But ultimately, that came my way because I grew up the son of two parents with advanced degrees who instilled in me the value of getting educated and who created time and space for me to do it when I was young, when so many other people around me didn't have that same chance. So I'm grateful for that. Yet, in some ways, it's taken the better part of my life to really get it. So please, do some reflection on your own on this lived experience piece and see who you want to go write a thank you note to. If you want some templates for this exercise, check out the show notes right here in the app you're listening to this episode on or over on our website, BreakthroughBuilders.com. That's Breakthrough-Builders.com. Hit me up through the website and share some of your reflections. I'd love to hear from you. Take care, Breakthrough Builders, and be well. Thanks so much for listening to Breakthrough Builders. You can subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoyed the show, I'd be grateful if you could spread the word by leaving a rating and a review. It really does help other listeners find us. And please, tell your friends. Breakthrough Builders is a production of the Industries team at Qualtrics. The show is written and hosted by me, Jesse Pierwall. Mastering by Nate Crenshaw. Post-production and music by Clean Cuts Audio, part of the Three Seas Collective. Design by Baron Santiago and Bensuka Shindavija. Website by Gregory Haydon. And photography by Christy Hemcock. Special thanks to the entire Breakthrough Builders crew at Qualtrics, including Ali Rohani, Jeremy Smith, John Johnson, and Kylan Lundin. Oh,